listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking, and they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for, gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, Show your support to Baronfig. Go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10. That's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single origin coffees. They're committed to long term sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans. You have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to kovacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com, and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10, and you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. Today on the show, we have Brendan Whittington. Brendan is an associate portfolio manager at a hedge fund unit in a Boston-based asset management firm. His focus is on corporate high-yield debt and distressed credit investing with an emphasis on off-the-run middle market companies. Brendan holds a BS in commerce and economics and is presently completing his MBA from Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Management. Enjoy my conversation with Brendan Whittington. Brendan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. So the first question I'd like to start off with guests is going back to 2008. Take us back. What were you doing at the time? What was going through your mind? 2008, that's a long time ago. Um, I was still an undergraduate at the University of Virginia. Um, specifically, I was just transitioning from the uh, arts and sciences uh, school to the commerce school. Um, I had been studying economics um, before that, and then I entered that fall, in the fall of 2008, uh, into the Commerce Department uh, with the intent of uh, studying finance and accounting. Um, it was very interesting time, to say the least. Um, I went from understanding you know, everything from the classical 
economic pr- perspective, big believer of the EMH, efficient market hypothesis, super rationality and that type of thing. And um, needless to say, it was a real wake-up call uh, when everything the textbook said um, couldn't happen, um, all of a sudden did. I, I actually still have a uh, a textbook that had, you know, it's a 500-page econ textbook that has a, a, on a single page, you know, the bottom right, kind of like one of these, you know, call-out um, boxes. It talked about negative interest rates um, in Japan and how they happened for a few split seconds, I think in like the 1990s, um, and how, you know, it was really just more of an intrigue and um, something that, you know, can't persist for a very long time and, you know, is an interesting thing to observe, but really nothing more, just more of a point to make that, they can go negative, but um, here we are years and years later, and, and um, it's now commonplace. Um, but, yes, yeah, so that was certainly an interesting education of having the entire financial markets turn upside down while still in school and at the same time um, being of the mindset of wanting to enter the finance space. Uh, it certainly required some uh, reevaluing of things. Um, so it was, yeah, it was an interesting time to be in, in school. Uh, not optimal from a job perspective, but, uh, you know, still maybe able to find an interesting, uh, role afterwards, um, as it all came out. Yeah, it's really interesting. A lot of people going through school at the time, um, had to kind of readjust their thinking and some of the things in textbooks that you might have taken for granted. A lot of that, uh, got thrown out the window or at least some of it. And, uh, we'll be talking a little more about, different dislocations and asset prices and the oil markets that we just saw this week uh, shortly here. But um, let's transition a little bit to after that and after you graduated and um, how you kind of started off your career and tell us a little bit about that. Certainly. Um, so I entered the street uh, in New York. I started off at uh, Lazard Frere and Company. Um, I worked in what was called the corporate finance and capital markets uh, group. It's essentially a kind of a catch-all uh, group that focused on uh, leverage finance type of transactions um, and also did a bunch of special advisory type of work. So this is 2010, 2011, um, very early days of the re- recovery, um, but things were already percolating, getting, you know, c- coming back. But uh, one of the early interesting assignments that I got to work on was actually with the, the U.S. Treasury. Um, specifically, uh, we were tasked with um, advising the Treasury around what to do with this, at the then time, uh, 50-odd percent stake in, in General Motors. Um, and this is kind of you know interesting point to make in terms of uh, how complicated rules and regulation are. Um, the Treasury Department wanted to know Basically, how do they actually go about selling the stake when it comes down to it in a few time, a few years time? You know, they didn't want to be in the position of being an asset manager. Um, so they hired an external firm, Lazard, to advise them on laws written in the 1930s that were written by the Treasury, how to properly and legally sell uh, a large uh, share of their <laughs> of this of this company. So kind of an interesting situation where you're advising people who presumably should have been knowing it in the first place. Um, but that's what happens when rules and regulations are so complicated. Even the people themselves don't know because they've been written decades and decades ago. Uh, so that was, you know, really fascinating to, to be in a position of 
uh, building out a model and, and talking to treasury officials and how to handle what was then, you know, seemingly a once in a lifetime, uh, corporate bailout. It'll be interesting to see if someone in, you know, similar capacity in my shoes will be doing this for Boeing maybe in the next couple of years. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I know going back, um, to 2008, 2009, PIMCO was hired, uh, to advise and start doing some, uh, transactions and buying and fixed income. And now we saw BlackRock was hired. Mm-hmm. So I think that's interesting when you look at the debt and even on the equity side, how these private firms are, are being called in and have been called in to advise on transactions and it kind of clouds the line between public and private, which the Fed is already kind of clouded in that way where obviously the president appoint, appoints the chairman, but the member banks are private banks, which own stock and it's kind of go down that rabbit hole where it's, it gets very cloudy pretty fast. It's, it's fascinating. You make that point. I mean, if every now and then, you know, someone who was actually interested in the subject will get on talking about that. And I tell them, you know, that, you know, the Federal Reserve is actually owned by banks. And they will be like, what do you mean it's owned by banks? And yeah, they're, they, they, <laughs> there are shareholders. There's 17 odd primary dealers that hold a preferred equity in this bank that actually pays them. I think it's a 6% dividend and they're shareholders. Right. It's, you know, and that's the, that's the, you know, that's the, the Federal Reserve. And there's, you know, the, the case of the Swiss National Bank, which isn't even more of a, mind-blowing case. Yeah, exactly. So let's transition and talk about a little about what you're doing now and talk about your role where you currently are in in a broad context of of just the the kind of the broad level view here and and talk a little about what's happening in markets right now. Certainly. What you're seeing Uh, out there. Absolutely. So I'm an associate portfolio manager. I focus on high yield and distressed uh, credit investment at a um, hedge fund unit at an asset manager in in Boston. Um, for the past few years, it was a perennial story of of yields are just keep going lower and lower and lower. Um, what on earth are you going to be buying? Um, the you know the, the various central banks of the world are buying everything. Um, in terms of on, on the, the, the sovereign side, but it was squeezing high yield uh, corporate as well. Um, there's nothing to stress out there. There's nothing to do. Um, now we're in an interesting situation given what has happened in the past uh, few months with Corona pretty much upending everything. Um, we're almost in the same place, but it's gone, <laughs> it's gone, gotten even loonier. Um, now central banks, um, have decided that they're also hedge fund managers and are buying uh, corporate high yield debt as well. Um, so fortunately from my standpoint, uh, the investment set has gotten far more interesting. I mean, high yield, um, you know, it was, it was at one point, I think it was, you know, only 500, 500 points, uh, 500 bits wide, uh, the treasuries, um, just a few months ago, you know, it blew out to 1100 uh, basis points. And now it's now about 750, 770 call it. Uh, so the, the opportunities have certainly gotten a lot wider, um, but at the same time, the underlying uh, fundamentals of the companies has truly been, become unprecedentedly worse. Um, so it's an interesting time because uh, the opportunity set uh, on the distress side uh, is finally back after being pretty much extinct as an asset class for the you know, past three, four years. 
And what are you seeing as far as spreads compared to 2008? Like, are, are there any comparisons to make from the market dislocations back then versus what we've experienced in the past few weeks? So I would say is everything's been been faster but shallower. So in mm-hmm. 2008, right, I was not live on the trading desk at the time, so this mm-hmm. is my historical view. But uh, the high yield high yield spread blew out to you know that 17 percent. Uh, um, it took you know several months to, to get there, and then took many many years to to, to come down. Um, what happened in the most recent? It, it was a matter of two three weeks. We went to 11 percent. And then came all the way back down to seven percent. Now you know been widening here a little bit. So you know, in summary, it's it's it was painful. It was fast, but nowhere near as brutal as in two thousand eight, and certainly not not as long. Um, you know, it's 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 certainly you know if you take away the, the central banks, which is always a huge takeaway. Um, it's mind-boggling that this would be occurring, given that you know we're looking at a situation of the economy being down 25, 30 percent in GDP per terms this year. Granted, we're going to get a big bounce back probably in 2021, but um, you know you'd think this would be <laughs> end times uh, for for the sector. Now, obviously, who knows? Quote, is this time different? Maybe we will see. Uh, the Federal Reserve is now uh, in the game of buying uh, corporate debt and has even found a wiggle room to buy uh, high yield debt within its mandate. Um, we go into that a little more with life, but it's certainly um, yeah. impressed them to what they're doing. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about the mechanics of it. So they're actually going in and buying. They're, are they actually going in and buying the equity, the underlying equity of the ETF, which which holds obviously a pass-through of certain fixed income, you know, QSIPs, let's call it, or how is the, actually the mechanics of it work? So interestingly, as of now, they're actually not doing any of it yet. So if you recall a couple of, of weeks ago, I guess over a month and a half ago, when they announced some of the early plans, they were starting to buy uh, CMBS. That took almost four weeks for them to actually start. So they only started doing that about a week and a half ago. So they gave, you know, a nice little solid opportunity for the, for the buy side to front run them. You know, they're, they're price agnostic. <laughs> right. So, um, the Fed announced, you know, this, this next phase in QE infinity. Um, and I guess it's like two, three weeks ago, uh, maybe a little more. Uh, so they haven't actually done it yet. Now they, they, they will, but you know, the market has reacted in, in the interim. Um, so what they've actually done, because per their own charter, they can't be doing this, uh, an SPV has been created um, that they are financing and that has been underwritten with equity from the from the Treasury as a first loss. Um, they That vehicle um, is doing the buying with you know, the auspices of, of, of BlackRock. And per the, their guidelines, they will start buying uh, corporate bonds and then uh, some of these fallen angels um, that were IG investment grade just a few weeks ago, um, and they will also uh, buy ETFs. Um, they have some limitations around um, how much they can buy of any asset class, uh, so that they that they don't make the market too illiquid. Um, but you know, we've we've seen this movie before with Japan. Uh, Japan now owns about 10% plus of every single ETF out there. Um, we'll see if that, if that happens in, in the U.S. 
So yes, they they are going to be operating in the secondary market. Um, they even may operate in the in the primary market. The, the, these provisions um, have been granted for them to do that. Um, it'll be very interesting to see. Um, one of the you know interesting thing is 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 the the backdating of the the uh, IG provisions. So uh, when this was announced a few weeks ago. They said that they would um, still consider buying bonds that are currently double B, but were triple B up until I believe it was uh, March 25th or was it 22nd? I'm gonna get the exact date wrong. Um, they it was required from only one of the three major agencies. Now, you know, you start looking at it like, well, why would they do that? Well, three days later is when Ford, interestingly enough, lost all of its. IG ratings, I believe Fitch was the last holdout. Um, so now Ford, which is in, you know, pretty interesting position, um, they can buy Ford for debt. So, you know, I was joking with my, my portfolio manager the other days, can Ford default now? Right. Right. I mean, fundamentally, yes, it can and it, sh- and it might need to. Um, but. I mean, they have a backstop from the Federal Reserve up until up until the point they get downgraded further, and then we'll we'll see. It's really yeah, yeah. And I think you yeah, and I think you bring up a good point about where they're actually going to be investing in the capital structure, right? So they can you know start buying the debt, or maybe they move up to preferred, and then do they actually hold common stock? You know, where are they in the capital structure and then where, um, you know, how does that actually play out in real time as far as them buying an ETF, which owns common stock through that ETF, or maybe they actually just buy the, the, the common stock on the primary market type of thing. Yes, it's, 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 I mean, we're, we're in really uncharted territories right now. Um, you know, they're going to probably first, um, and I think it's, 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 I mean, let's be honest. They, they are market dependent. They are going to react and see how the market does. If, if we, you know, we've had this incredible bounce back, um, these past few weeks. Um, if it keeps, if it, if it keeps up, they will probably stop right here. If it rolls over, then they will probably find new things that need to be, need to be bought. Um, for now, they've said that they're going to be buying bonds. Uh, ET, uh, ETFs, and then through these this mainstream lending facility, they will uh, backstop some of the term loans that are out out there um, as well. But um, as we've seen with Japan, um, uh, you know, I, it's I think it's no, no holds holds barred. I think what's what's interesting and fascinating, and this was a, you know a bit of a debate I had with someone, is that they actually uh, front ran the ECB. Um, I was on the, the the view about a month and a half ago that this wasn't going to happen until the ECB did it because if you look at the how the ECB uh, behaved in the past ten years, they were the first to start cutting rates again. They were the first to go negative. They were the first to start bu- buying um, uh, sovereign sovereign debt. Um, but they only just now have have got, have jumped on board the, the corporate bandwagon as well. So. Um, the the Fed finally won up the ECB. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting to see. Obviously, the Fed and other central banks being the lender of last resort, and we've talked a lot on the show about why they needed to inject all that liquidity very fast back in 2008, and it's arguable that they had to inject liquidity now, especially with some of the repo issues, even before. 
this virus broke out and then obviously giving and getting money to people who need it to kind of backstop um, those type of things. Um, and then, you know, now we're moving down this path though of, of, okay, everyone now needs a bailout, oil companies, airlines, restaurants, I mean, everybody, every single industry, which, you know, how do we, how does that actually play out in, in the marketplace as far as when you look at, um, inflationary forces and the kind of globalization and these other things that we've discussed in the past, it, it will be interesting to see. So, you know, I've heard on actually a couple of other podcasts I was listening to a little more technical, um, talking about the high yield ETF, how it kind of trades by appointment where you <laughs> pick up the phone and a lot of this stuff is illiquid, but they quote a price. You know, when you look up your Fidelity or wherever your brokerage is, you know, you're seeing a price quoted there on the high yield ETF. Um, and I know a lot of high yield is actually tied to, en- to the energy markets. It's a, it seems like a large percentage mm-hmm. of it. So talk a little about that as far as some of the illiquid, uh, underlying investments in these ETFs. And then let's transition into talking about what's happening in energy and what's your opinion on that right now, how it relates up to the high yield market and things like that. Certainly. So, um, so the, 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 the point on the ETF is particularly interesting. So the ETF itself trades just like a stock. Uh, in fact, it probably trades, you know, thousands of times a day. And that's what's incredibly interesting is that that's not what the underlying bonds are doing. Uh, you can uh-huh. get in, you can get in and out of that, that ETF, you know, as many times as you want. I'm sure the you other know, rent techs of the world do that. Uh, what's Questionable and what's interesting is that the underlying bonds can't and don't do that. Some of the bonds really do trade by appointment. There are bonds in, you know, the biggest one, HYG, that literally don't trade every single day and some may not have traded in, in days or even, even weeks. Yet somehow you're able to dump or, or add, uh, millions and millions of dollars of exposure at a time when the underlying does not do that. Um, that's, been tested in recent weeks. Um, you know, you had a few periods where where the, the NAB diverted that diverged a little bit to the downside, and and then after the Fed said they were going to get involved in, in this market, it actually traded at a premium as high as seven percent one day. Um, that's not supposed to happen to a an open ended ETF. Um, now um, the high yields. You know, this is you know high ETFs came about. You know, the past 15 odd years, they weren't really that big or systemic in 2008. We're now finally at a point where, uh, you know, they are a very significant and meaningful part of the market. And we started seeing what happens when those things start selling off. They create, they create feedback loops. And, you know, this is, I don't want to get too conspiratorial, but it's, let's call it interesting to know that, you know, BlackRock, um, is, now advising the Fed on buying bonds, but they're also one of the largest ETF providers out there. Um, so, so I mean, I wonder what ETF they may or may not need to buy or if feel like needs to be bought. But, um, you know, if there's any underlying liquidity issues, um, how is that being siloed off properly? Um, it's, yeah. So the, the, there's a massive disconnect with, with the underlying liquidity. In the corporate bonds, then and the um, the ETF itself. Now, the more more dubious and 
troubling one actually is the is the loans. Um, not sure how familiar with they are. Um, you know, there's a dozen of them out there. Loans, unlike bonds, you know, they're even more by appointment. But bonds at least settle on a T plus two basis. Loans are on a T plus seven basis. Now, I've traded some of these loans in some of these big popular uh, loan funds. I have now granted a smaller fund. Maybe it's a little bit different if I'm at a PIMCO, but I've had underlying loans take 20, 25 days to actually settle. I don't know how that is a very robust system if there is a true washout going on in the market. Um, people need to sell and you have underlying loans that require at best of times T plus seven to, to clear. Um, so it's, 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 it's very, it's very fragile. Um, you know, they haven't blown up yet. I don't, I'm not going to make a prediction that they are, but, um, they are certainly adding to, uh, feedback loops that exist in the market. And, um, certainly, you know, when, when you see these up massive up ramp periods or, or down ramp periods, it's, it's definitely without a doubt, um, adding to it. Right. And I'm looking here that this was an article back in 2014 from Barron's, but back then they're quoting that the uh, energy market comprised about 17 to 20 percent of the high yield market. Um, and this and that was up from only 8 percent in 2008. Where are we now and what's going on in that particular pocket of high yield now that we saw oil, oil prices go negative? Now they're up to, I think, uh, $17 right now. But um, what's your thoughts on that piece? Yeah, so it's no longer that high, not 20, but it's still in the I call in the uh, low t- low teens to, to mid teens now. Right? Um, in terms okay. of in terms of uh, total, you know, bond uh, outstanding <laughs> value, it might have dipped substantially, given what uh, oil has has done. Um, but it's it's an absolute bloodbath because you know we're at this point right now where every single oil company. Um, is not just financially insolvent at this, at these prices of the longer term, but they're operationally insolvent. I mean, even Gawar in Saudi Arabia is not making money at this level on a, you know, full cycle basis. Um, so uh, you, the only way you can underwrite these is if you, if you, you know, take a massive, you know, PDP discount and feel comfortable with that. Um, I'm not you know, too focused on this, this sector, which has been a benefit as it has not uh, blown up in my face as many other people. Um, funds have, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging. And, and the, the, you know, the shocking thing about it is that, um, in the, let's call it, uh, 13, 14, 15 period, um, this was a very hot area in the high yield market because, you know, we were starting to, you know, get into these, these, uh, ZERP environments where, uh, you know, we were, people were chasing for yield and, and energy was the, was this go-go place to, to find yield. Um, in, you know, we went through a hot, a, um, oil decline cycle then, huge blow up, people lost a lot of money. You know, gradually oil came back, uh, and what happened, we, 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 no one learned the lesson, it seemed like. Private equity once again, uh, piled in, and new deals got funded, and once again, here we are. The, the sex, sector is, is, uh, hemorrhaging cash, and, um, you know, they've, They've uh, you know, lost a ton of money, so um, it's not a sector that should be uh, this. It should not be a sector that where high yield is a primary source of capital. But due to you know the low interest rate environment fostered by central banks, that's how it is. But um, at some point, 
uh, even zero um, is is not cheap enough if if oil goes <laughs> if oil uh, falls as a single digits or even negative on a you know, very short term basis that we saw the other day. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit, spend a couple minutes here on what's happening actually in oil markets. So earlier this week, or was it last week? The weeks are, are melding together right now. Um, we saw oil prices go into negative territory, I believe, uh, negative $50. Um, and that obviously has to do with storage costs and, and things like that as far as storing the actual commodity. But let's talk about kind of the mechanics of, um, the retail product USO and, and how that contributed to that kind of price anomaly. We saw this happen, um, not negative prices, but we saw these kind of anomalies happen in the uh, VIX market, at, um, mm-hmm. you know, going back a couple years ago where we had these retail investors shorting volatility and, and using these ETFs and these retail products. Um, to monetize that contango and you can get kind of complex, but basically the whole thing blew up. Let's talk about what's happening now in oil with USO, the retail ETF. Certainly. So USO, I was a, a, I've been asked multiple times by people, how do I play oil? How do I play oil? And inevitably USO <laughs> comes up and, you know, I'm going to say it now, and I said that I strongly discourage anyone from ever touching that vehicle. <laughs> it is structurally flawed, and as you can see, uh, it will ultimately go to zero, and you know, they'll keep they'll keep uh, you know uh, reverse splitting it. Um, if you look at it since 2008, when it first came about, it was pegged originally at the price of oil. Um, it's now was a, a two dollar stock, and oil you know the front month oil is at seventeen dollars now. So uh, massive um, underperformance over this time. That's structurally it's, it's structurally flawed because it does not buy barrels of oil. It buys futures contracts. It, it, it had up until a few weeks ago always been buying the, the front match futures contract. And generally speaking, um, you know, oil futures most commodities are in a contango, and, and you have to keep buying these contracts over and over again every single month. You have to roll them. And uh, because you're always buying at a higher price, uh, it's organically atrophying over time. Now, to this story here, um, fortunately, um, they actually uh, were the retail investor was spared uh, the worst. It could have actually gone the way of VIX. But uh, USO actually, I believe it was one day before the front month of oil contract went zero, actually to negative. Um, it actually rolled its entire um, uh, contract to the next month, uh, so it was spared that that um, that crisis. Um, what would have happened then would have been uh, uh, I yeah it would have been something in, in the 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 realm of of the VIX blow up. Uh, there was another ETF I believe it's called OIL or Oil. Um, I believe they had also. Um, Rolled, but they um, may have had some strangler positions, and they've actually they actually had to liquidate the other the other day um, uh, at, at you know residual cash value. Um, but you'll you'll see you know, the the day after, um, or actually the the day of the uh, you know, the, the infamous when oil went negative, um, U, USO started changing its um, framework as to which co- contracts it buys, and actually started buying further out um, months. And it's and it's effectively now a a, a an actively trading 
trading um, futures fund, which is well beyond its uh, uh, ETF prospectus, um, how the SEC has not taken a closer look at this type of product is truly beyond me. So the it itself did not contribute um, to the the front month going negative. Um, it's um, it was spared that um, the, the front month going negative. Um, that was you know primarily straggler retail um, that was in there. Um, most like the CME requires people who are in these contracts who are uh, not bona fide um, hedgers to be out of the contract well before. Uh, the final days so that, you know, they don't accidentally have oil fall on their doorsteps. Um, so, you know, the, the vast majority of trading, um, had already shifted to the, the June contract. But, um, yeah, some people really got in trouble. I mean, we saw international brokers, um, they had about, they lost about, um, I think it was like $80 million. Um, you know, some accounts where their equity went negative and, it sounds like the Bank of China, the, the commercial bank, um, they also had some, um, you know, some of these wealth management products where they were playing oil. They also lost, you know, around $100 million worth of, uh, of value. Interesting. And let's, that's a very interesting explanation and kind of adds a little more clarity around it. Thanks for that. Let's transition over to talking about other commodities kind of tying this back to our conversation about the Fed just uh, throwing money at everything and kind of the whole uh, everything but the kitchen sink policy that they're embarking on. Um, let's talk a little bit about gold and the role of gold and silver, maybe silver in a portfolio and talk a little about sound money and kind of being a believer in sound money in this era of central bank uh, money printing. Yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, I'm I'm not a gold bug per se, but I'm certainly a strong believer in its value. It has been around for as a as a currency for 2000 years as something idolized by virtually every civilization across every single part of the world and over space and time for for 5000 years. So. Um, there is something truly uh, fascinating about that from almost a psychological standpoint. How, how is it that Incans became obsessed with gold and at the same time the Romans became obsessed with gold and the ancient Chinese became obsessed with gold? It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's not, this is not a financial aspect. It's certainly an interesting element. But um, from a more investment standpoint, I, mean, I think it has to be something that is core to one's investment portfolio. Now, core does not mean 50% of your portfolio. Um, but you know, at this point in time, having say five percent of your of your investable assets, and it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, I'm personally a little bit, little bit more. Um, I I take a little bit of a speculative element at, about this as well. Um, but it has been, and who knows, maybe it will be the backbone of money once all this plays out. Um, it certainly is going to get fought tooth and nail. Um, but it's it's behaving the way it, sh- it should be. Um, it's ultimately a currency, and um, it's been over the past couple of years. It's actually been one of the best performing asset classes. Actually, if you go if you go back since to 2000, the year 2000, gold is the single best asset other than Bitcoin. Right, right, yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, 
there's we've had people talk about uh, gold on the program, and I like to follow people like Jim Grant, mm-hmm. uh, Grant Williams, and and other people hear what other people have to say about it. And um, going back for for many years, there's been this kind of push and pull between some of the more fiscal hawks, let's say, and now we're getting to the point where it's it's in the mainstream. I mean, you'll see, I saw a report on Zero Hedge, and people, <laughs> you might cringe and say, well, I, I saw a report on Zero, Zero Hedge, but it was I think it was in the other mainstream press as well, talking about Bank of America put out a note saying they're, you know, recommending to clients own gold. And the, obviously, these sell-side banks put out stuff all the time, and they contradict, contradict themselves uh <laughs> on a month-over-month basis, but, it, it, you know, you, you see this more and more coming from, let's say, mainstream outlets and mainstream press and mainstream sell-side banks. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I think Bank of America, they came out with a, a $3,000 call uh, the other day, and the, you know, the, right. the, the, the value contrarian investor in, in me almost freaked out and wanted to sell it all when I, when I heard that. I mean, I, I, uh, why I don't disagree with that as a, you know, maybe a, a very, very, very long-term view. Um, I, I, you know, it, the, when I start hearing, if I start hearing, uh, the, you know, mainstream, let's call it non-zero hedge people, um, calling for $5,000 gold, maybe that's, maybe, maybe we've reached, we, we, we've reached the top. Um, I mean, personally, I think something in the, in the low 2000s in, in the, or the next few years makes a lot, makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, certainly, I mean, it's, you know, as a, as an alternative to what we currently have now, the fiat based system, I mean, I would, I would like to think that's possible, but to be honest, it's going to be brutally hard. I mean, the, I mean, you're, you're the, the cat's out of the bag. You have to convince the entire system to go back to what was a system that is based on physical hard currency. Um, I just don't see that happening. You're, you're, you're telling central banks to give up the power, give it back to Iraq. And I don't think that's just going to happen. I think what's more likely going to happen is, is we go the route of some sort of central bank issue digital currency. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Now la- wrapping up, I'd like to ask you one last question, which is something that's on the minds of a lot of people as far as what's happening with the Fed right now. So we talked about the mechanics and you mentioned that some of these purchase programs haven't even started yet, but obviously the market kind of rallied on the news. In your view, do you, you know, which camp are you in? So the first campus says, okay, don't fight the Fed. Um, you know, whatever the Fed is buying, that's just going to boost, you know, boost that particular sector and those asset prices and then possibly asset prices as a whole to kind of reinflate uh, these risk assets. And then there's the other camp that says, okay, you know, we've gone through the Greenspan put and then we had Bernanke yelling. Now we have Powell. Um, and then, you know, that thesis kind of says, okay, sooner or later, uh, investors are going to lose or the market will lose confidence in the Fed. And, you know, that put's going to be gone. And, and I've even seen some tweets and some commentary that that had already happened when the Fed had launched their bazooka. This was a few weeks ago or a month ago. Um, that first 
obviously they've done many things since then, but when they cut rates, uh, they did two intermeeting cuts, which was pretty unprecedented. Um, and then uh, all of the you know, asset purchases and the kind of QE that's soon to happen. But, you know, I, more and more I think about it, <laughs> camp number one is just kind of, you know, maybe makes the most sense. I, I just, it's hard to see the Fed being able to lose control with the unlimited printing, but where do you, where do you fall? And I know there's some nuance here. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm hoping to sound like I'm speaking out of both sides of the, my, my mouth. So the way I would think about it is you cannot generically go out and fight the Fed. What I, what I mean by that is if you are going to try and just short the market, just buy a bunch of puts and buy a bunch of spy short, it's probably, you're probably going to be in a world of hurt for a very long time. Um, they are, the, the system, let's call it the entire financial system, simply given that we are a growing world, growing population, it has to go higher. And I'm saying it, it should or would, but it has to. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise we're talking Mad Max Thunderdome. So, Every single institution out there, whether it's a central bank or or uh, government, wants asset prices to go higher. Now, will they? Is it's, that's the great question. I think they will continue to do everything and anything to make sure that they do go higher. That might mean that they normally go a lot higher. Uh, in real terms, that could maybe not be the case. I'm sure that inflation of some form is definitely going to come. So what I, what I suggest or the way I think about it is, is don't generically fight the Fed. So what you need to do, or at least how I think about it, is find things that can survive. Underwritten, underwriting individual equities, under individual stocks that you think can do well. And if you are going to get bearish, you need to get bearish on individual names. Generic shorting of the market, I think, is going to be brutally, brutally hard here still. And that, and, and, I, and I'm personally of the view still that, that the market goes a lot lower from here. Um, but they're going to fight it. They're going to fight it tooth and nail. So I might be brutally wrong. So another element about that is, is why not, instead of fighting them, join them. And what I mean is don't just simply go levered long and, you know, stick your head in the ground. That's why I'm a, I'm a believer in, in, in commodities, uh, particularly gold and silver. To me, that is kind of like being in on the joke. I know that they are going to do everything in their power possible to keep asset prices up and make them sure they go from the bottom left to the top right. That will have one guaranteed effect over time. It's going to destroy the real value um, of the of the currency. If you look and see, for example, what is the best performing market in the world? Over the past couple of years, it's been the Venezuelan stock market. Now, no one in their right mind wants to be long Venezuelan stocks because they are worthless. But mm-hmm. that's that's essentially what we're up against with far with far more credible banks. So, I I would say as an investor, you know, find businesses that are stable, that can grow, that can thrive. Um, don't just generically buy the market though, and don't generically short the market either. At the same time, I think an allocation to precious metals um, should be a little bit higher on your priority list than it has been in the past because um, maybe I am completely wrong and I've been many times wrong. Um, but what they are doing and what the fiscal policies are doing is is express is, is being done with the express tent to inflate. 
Um, so we'll see if, if whether or not um, the underlying value of the of these uh, assets are actually what they are um, today. Yeah, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Well, Brendan, it was uh, really great having you on, and um, we really appreciate it. I think we're going to keep a close eye on markets here uh, going into the end of the year and see how the quarantine plays out. And um, I'd like to have you back uh, once the dust settles and and once the asset purchase program starts really ramping up, and then we'll uh, – We'll check in then and see uh, see if your views have changed or um, see uh, see if there's anything else uh, that you might predict going forward. Absolutely. One thing is for sure, it's not going to be boring. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Brendan. Really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at jellydonutpod, or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.